from Michigan Radio. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, two Michigan lawsuits challenge vaccine requirements at public universities. Many of the avenues they're using aren't new. Vaccine mandates have been around for a long time, and some of the claims have been heard before. Also, a Michigan Marine who served in Afghanistan on reaching out to Afghan allies who need to relocate. We need to be able to step up and do our part, and I think that's important because that is baked in the DNA of our country and who we are. Plus, writer Peter Marcus talks about an abrupt pivot into poetry during his father's terminal illness. You know, I, I, I spent half my life making things up, and when my father fell ill, uh, I, I knew that I had something to say. Those stories and more coming up on today's edition of Stateside. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, one veteran of the war in Afghanistan talks about helping Afghans move to Michigan and making sense of this moment. There are Americans that are 20 and younger that know nothing else but us being in Afghanistan. That's coming up later on today's show. But first, the number of Michigan institutions requiring employees and others to get a dose of a COVID vaccine is climbing. Washtenaw County this week joins Kent County and others with new rules that will cover school-aged children and public school employees. Most of the state's colleges and universities, students and staff began their academic year either with mask rules or frequent testing. And yet there are two legal cases right now challenging those rules. A group of four undergraduates at Western Michigan University, all of them soccer players, are challenging their school's requirement that student athletes get vaccinated. Separately, there's an administrator at Michigan State University that's filed a suit challenging the rule that requires vaccines for students, faculty, and staff. There's a great deal to talk about here, touching on several spheres of evolving legal precedent. Dorit Rice is with us to sort through it. She's professor of law at the University of California, Hastings College of Law, and she keeps close track on vaccines and case law right now. Professor Rice, welcome to Stateside. Thank you for having me. Can you start by giving us just a brief overview of some of the key avenues that people in different parts of the country have been using to challenge vaccine rules as they have evolved? Certainly. And I will add that many of the avenues they're using aren't new. Vaccine mandates have been around for a long time, and some of the claims have been heard before. So here are the three big buckets people have been using to challenge vaccine mandates. First, and this is reflected in your uh, lawsuit by the university administrator, some have claimed that you cannot mandate vaccines under an emergency use authorization. That actually has some legal basis. It's an area of uncertainty because vaccines under an emergency use authorization for the entire populations are new and the law is unclear, but it should have been Uh, solved when the FDA authorized, fully licensed Pfizer's vaccine uh, on Monday last week, on the 23rd of August. However, anti-vaccine activists have pivoted to saying that the license doesn't cover the doses still available of the vaccine that have the label of the EUA vaccine. That's a really problematic claim because it's the same vaccine. But the lawsuit by the university administrator is still trying to claim that the vaccine is not licensed and under an EUA. That's a really problematic claim. So one thing is attacking the vaccine, saying you can't mandate EUA vaccine, and 
rather than accepting that licensing the vaccine solved that issue, uh, the anti-vaccine movement has provided an argument that the vaccines aren't really licensed. Mm -hmm. Another bucket is claiming religious exemptions. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 provides a protection for employees with sincere objection to a workplace rule uh, for religious reasons, but the protection is not absolute. The First Amendment for public institution also protects religious freedom, but it's not clear whether that requires a religious exemption. In this case, most universities and employers are offering religious exemptions already, not all, but most. And your, the second lawsuit by students uh, is one such lawsuit where the university offered a religious exemption, but did not grant it to these specific plaintiffs. And they're saying, you should have granted our religious exemption. And we're seeing a lot of um, claims uh, under religious freedom. The soccer players at at Western Michigan are making this case based on their Christian faith. One of the plaintiffs, Morgan Otteson, uh, wrote in the complaint, in, in God's eyes, my body is a temple. He intends for me to keep my body clean from any unclean food and injections. And she goes on to say she believes God has given her the strength to naturally fight off illnesses. Uh, would the plaintiffs have to demonstrate guidance from a denomination to support this kind of argument? Great question. So the answer is plaintiffs do not have to show that they belong to a denomination that opposes vaccine. The test is their personal belief. And the problem there is that when you're looking at personal belief and sincerity, that opens the door to widespread abuse. There's a lot of evidence that most people who are hesitant about COVID-19 vaccines are acting because of concerns about the science behind the vaccines. Most of them drawing on misinformation, but concerns about the vaccines rather than religion. But they, because the exemptions available are religious exemptions, they're cloaking it in the guise of religion. And because the test is sincerity of the personal belief, it's really hard to police. As you're suggesting, in this case, uh, the claims of the students are uh, problematic on their face. Yeah. They are using Bible verses, but they're also strongly suggesting that the real concern is about the content of the vaccine. My body is my temple and unclean suggests the student has concern about the content and maybe using religion as a fig leaf. And it's hard to police. Right. Uh, for that matter, would in prior cases, have plaintiffs tried to demonstrate that, have they been asked to demonstrate that they have observed such guidances in the past? You know, whether or not it's, it's something denominational. Uh, so accepting vaccine in the past can work against sincerity, can support that the person is insincere, but it's not an absolute bar because people can change their mind and find religion. However, if you have accepted vaccine in the past, you may have a somewhat higher burden of convincing uh, the decision maker that you are in fact sincere now. Yeah. What other avenues are plaintiffs pursuing? Yes. The third avenue that's being used right now is to try and draw on unions' rights. Uh, under collective bargaining rules, some unionized workforces may have a right for a negotiation before a vaccine mandate, not necessarily to stop the vaccine mandate, but to be negotiated with. And uh, some unions have uh, expressed opposition to vaccine mandate, and there have been successful cases where unions sued for 
a lack of negotiation before vaccine mandates. These are cases before COVID-19, but it's another area. The fourth area that might lead to cases, but they haven't seen any yet, is the American with Disabilities Act, which protects the rights of people who cannot medically be vaccinated to be accommodated unless it's a really high burden. Uh, you know, uh, Professor Rice, I think I heard you say that, mentioned that there is this body of case law surrounding vaccinations prior to COVID. You know, the folks who, who choose not to get vaccinated for other diseases, this is, this is not an, a completely new thing in jurisprudence. And am I hearing you say that there has not been a significant difference in how courts have been looking at these cases now and how they used to look at them before the pandemic? Yes. Courts naturally look back at the previous cases about vaccine mandates. And as you were pointing out, we have a long history of vaccine mandate and quite a bit of litigation in the school immunization mandate context and in the employer mandate context. And courts are drawing on it and they have not dramatically departed from them yet. Right. I'm curious if you have a read on how the highest court in the United States might view vaccine rules. Within the last couple of days, Justice Amy Coney Barrett declined to forward a request for an emergency stay coming out of Indiana University. This was a challenge, I believe, from some students. Now, to be clear, what she said was, no, we're not going to require an emergency stay on the vaccine rule while the case makes its way through the courts. But Given all the changes that we have seen on the court in recent years, what, if anything, should we read into this? I think we should read very little into the decision uh, not to allow an emergency stay. Um, First of all, we should read something into it, because if the court really wanted to step into this area, at the least, Justice Barrett would have asked the university to respond and potentially forwarded it to her colleagues. So there's something there. On the other hand, uh, as you're pointing out, this is a request for an emergency stay in a case that's still not ended. That's under appeal to the Seventh Circuit after being dismissed at the district court level. And the the case is still ongoing. The, The court has not directly had a case before it on mandate. It's certainly an indication that at least Justice Barrett, is not rushing to take this on. But it's no more than that. I would add that I'm not particularly concerned about the court's approach about mandates generally. But an area where the court may uh, have a different view than past court is on whether there is a requirement for religious exemption, whether universities and employers offering a mandate have to give a religious exemption. The court has shown that it's more inclined to protect religious freedom than previous courts, but how far they're willing to go is not clear. This is probably not the best area for them to change the previous law because it's an area where religious exemptions are very vulnerable to abuse, very hard to police, and may well not be protecting real religious views or um, may, may well be more about vaccine concerns than about religion, but we don't know where the courts will go in this. Do you think we're on the verge of some new case law through some of these challenges that that might have some long-term implications for how public health works in this country? We're certainly going to see a lot of litigation, and I expect we'll see um, some inconsistencies across court and some uh, 
public health law, we could really use some strong court guidance on whether you can mandate a vaccine under an EUA, because this, again, is a new area. In other areas, even if all the courts do is repeat earlier precedents that allow vaccine mandates, having that precedent repeated in a 2021 context, in the context of COVID-19, would make a difference to public health law. So either way the courts go, it's important for the development of public health law. Professor Dorit Rice at UC Hastings College of Law. Professor, thank you so much. This is really informative. Thank you for having me. In a moment, one writer talks about the emotional and creative upheaval that sometimes accompany grief. I was just trying to really be true to what I was feeling and seeing and experiencing, and it had very little to do with technique. Peter Marcus reads to us from his new collection of poetry when we come back. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. One of the challenges that a lot of us are facing in 2021 is trying to put words to grief. There is the grief of those we lost to COVID, of course. Many of us experienced losses that were not related to COVID, with our grief interrupted by the physical distance that we needed to keep us safe. In times of exquisite sorrow, we can often turn to poetry for the exquisitely precise language that names what we're going through. Writer Peter Marcus, who has published several novels, has just produced a book of poetry published by Wayne State University Press, informed by the death of his father. It's called When Our Fathers Return to Us as Birds, and he's with us today to talk about it. Peter Marcus, welcome to Stateside. Oh, thank you, April. Thank you for having me, and thank you for such a, a beautiful introduction about how poetry can help others to access their own personal grief. I, I certainly hope so. I mean, it's, it kind of sounds like, as a writer of fiction, is, is that what was going on with you? Did, you? did you turn to a different form just to try to get your head around what was happening? You know, I, I, I spent half my life making things up. And when my father fell ill, uh, I, I knew that I had something to say about the whole experience. But for me to try to invent something or to, uh, you know, make something up uh, in the name of fiction just didn't feel right. It, it felt artificial in the way that I think uh, poetry can sort of transcend that and just sort of get right down to the bone of things. Right. Do you mind telling us about your dad? Sure. I don't talk too much about, you know, my dad or my, my family, which is interesting in that I wrote this very public book about a very private experience. Uh, but he was a good man. You know, I was lucky to be his son. Uh, he was always giving, always forgiving, always very present and supportive and generous uh, he liked people, and people liked him. He he loved to just uh, engage in conversations with strangers around the ice rink or the baseball diamond. So he was he was that guy, mm. old school Midwestern, born in Detroit, uh, the son of Greek immigrants. Uh, you know, went to Korea right out of high school. Uh, you know, met my mom at Southwestern High School where they first dated and the courtship moved forward. And next thing you know, you're 
married and back from the war and kids and you know trying to find a way to make a living in the the motor city uh eventually i came into the picture a little bit later than my sisters and the rest as they say is sort of history do you mind reading for us sure i'd love to read something there's uh, the very first poem in the collection is called what my father did not have to say i wonder if we could start there what my father did not have to say in his final days my father did not speak because he could not speak he did not ask how the car was running or about the kids or his grand dog he did not ask about work he did not look out at the boats on the river to say there goes a 32 footer or the lines on that boat are really fine He did not say the water was at its highest in 25 years. If his thin lips moved at all, it was only when I wiped them with a wet washcloth or put yogurt on a spoon up to them, hoping he would eat. He did not eat and he did not speak, and soon his breathing slowed until there was nothing. He'd been slowly dying and now he was dead. I did not know what to say and so I said little out loud. I walked down to the river where I thought maybe I would find something there to tell me what I was supposed to do now. The loons sat on the water and dove under when a boat motored close by. they did not sing not right then at least only later at night did they call out to each other their voices crisscrossing the river in the april dark my guest is writer peter marcus his new poetry collection is when our fathers return to us as birds peter were you doing a lot of caregiving for your dad i wouldn't say a lot because My mother was the person who was there doing the heavy lifting 24/7. Um but I was there whenever she needed uh my muscle or my back to uh help her with some of the heavier lifting. Um but just the, you know, there were moments when uh I was called into to to service and to duty and it was it was nothing but an honor. to be able to to tend to him. I'm so sorry, Peter. I don't talk about it often. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thing I really love about that poem is that it's um it, it manages to capture some of the the thickness of grief. when you know you're in the very much in the middle of an experience of the end of someone's life and there are a lot of things that need to be done but at the same time uh it, there's there's a feeling of time stopping it's uh it's really effective did you find that your your usual language was just altered by this when you first started thinking about the writing yeah You know, when I write fiction, it's all about sort of the acoustics of a sentence that I pay more attention to and you know, trying to be 
more playful and just caring more about the sound of, of the sentence versus what the sentence is even saying. And with these poems, even though I, and I, I'm, I'm pleased that there is that thickness that you refer to, uh, at the same time, I was just trying to really uh, be true to what I was feeling and seeing and hearing and experiencing. And it had very little to do with technique or uh, even kind of poetic language. I just wanted to write something that was true and honest and accessible to other people. Uh, with my fiction, I don't really care much about the reader. I'm writing almost just to please myself. And with these poems, I was more aware that there was a reader beyond myself involved in the process. Even if that reader was maybe I was having conversations with my father uh, on some level, or I was thinking about, you know, other people who lose their loved ones every day and how lucky I was that this was probably one of the very, you know, first major losses of my life. And here again, I just wanted to uh, pay attention and, and be present uh, and write something that just spoke from, for lack of, of a better way to say it, that just spoke from the heart you mentioned the fact that some of the poems function as a, as a conversation that you want to have with your dad. Not to say that you guys didn't talk when he was still with us, but I noticed also that you wrote still other poems in the third person. Of course, there are instances in the book where you're you're writing about your dad in third person, but sometimes I got the feeling that was not what you were doing. What is that third person signal? For me, it was just like that you know, that first person pronoun, especially in kind of elegies or confessional poetry, can can really take on a weight, not only for the, the speaker of the poems and the poet, but just for the reader uh, as well. So I, it was just, that was really where the fiction writer in me said, you know what, why don't we step back a little bit and get a little bit of some emotional distance from um, the I and the my and, and just see how that might open the poem up a little bit and maybe even make the poem a little bit more accessible to the reader uh, because in third person it gives the illusion at least that there are characters involved and almost separate from people uh, in, in the poems, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so occasionally I would step back and it just, that little bit of a remove just sort of gave me a little bit of some a breathing room uh, to keep on uh, kind of hammering into the subject of, of this book. And I, I choose that word carefully, hammering, because um, when I do write my books, uh, fiction, uh, and, and now poetry, I do so very obsessively. Like I find that one poem or I find that one story and then I tell an entire book about that one story or that one poem. So I always feel like I'm sort of, sort of rubbing those sticks together 
uh, and they're the same sticks, but hopefully the, 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 the heat that they throw or the fire or the, the smoke uh, is a little bit different each time I do so. What would you say is that central story for this book? Is it is it those hours that you spent in your dad's company when he was when he was on his way downhill, or or maybe the experience of being outside with him and and watching the birds? Yeah, I'd say both of those are the sort of the the plot lines of this this book. Being attentive to to him and being present and waking up to the sentence in my head, you know, my father is in a house across the river dying. Some iteration of that sentence was really what I woke up to every morning. And then I kept on sort of cranking the wheel around that sentence. And then by doing so, you know, all the things that were taken away from my father, like the ability to walk his difficulties with just speaking um, made me just so grateful for every step that I was able to take outside, whether or not he was with me in his wheelchair and we were looking out at the river or watching the birds. You know, we so often as just people, we, we take so much for granted. And I think when, when you lose somebody the way that I did and the way that we all will, uh, it really can shape the way that you you move forward. So there's a lot of walking in this book. There's a lot of talking to myself. Um, there's the, an awareness that my father will not live to see many of these poems, let alone this book. Um, so that kind of self-awareness was really a gift. I can feel the, the connection that you have with the natural world through lakes and rivers through uh, these poems, and also your connection with your dad in those places. Do you mind just telling us about some of your favorite lake and river spots, either that you might have gone to when you were in, in the process of writing these, or just where you go to feel connected with him? Yeah. I mean, the, the river is everything to me. I mean, that's one thing that can sort of is a common denominator between my fiction and this book of poems is that there's always a river present. My parents moved to uh, Grozeal when I was just getting out of college in Ann Arbor. Um, so I didn't grow up in the house that uh, my father died in, but spent, of course, quality time there. And it's, it's right on the, the, the edge or the bank of the Detroit River or where the Detroit River becomes what's called the Trenton Channel. Uh, and there used to be a steel mill called McLeod Steel directly across from where my parents live uh, or lived. And that's just, just that's a sacred place for me on both sides of the bank. Um, much of my fiction is set on the Trenton side of that channel uh, in a place, a real place that I don't ever name in the in the fiction. Uh, that locally, at least, it's known as the Black Lagoon. And it's just sort of just downriver from uh, where the steel mill that I mentioned used to, to stand. You know, I was going to ask you to read a different poem uh, as, we, as we let you go, but I think I now have to ask you to read uh, Tell That to Our Fathers or On the Eve of My 53rd Birthday, Pont Moulier. 
2019. Do, do you mind? Sure. What set the bald eagle apart from the other birds we saw yesterday down at the marsh was the grandness of its wings. Who are we to say that this magnificent bird wasn't one of our fathers? It flew by us on its way to somewhere else. I want to say that it turned its head to look at us for a brief moment, but that would be a fiction. The eagle cut back against the wind in search of what? A tree, another bird or fish to eat, or maybe something else we can know nothing about. The dogs walked ahead of us on the levee, unaware of what we were maybe thinking. Snow was blowing in off the lake. In the distance, the lighthouse readied itself to begin its nightly blinking. Across the river in Canada, the windmills were turning. Today, I turn another year older, 53. Can you believe it? Where I feel it most is in my knees. Tell that to our fathers, wings spread in the sky. My guest is writer Peter Marcus. Peter, it's impossible to miss you calling yourself out as a narrator of fictions in this. And and because of that and what you said before, I was wondering, do you think that this time and this experience has changed you as a writer? Absolutely. Right now, I don't have any interest in in making things up. I'm still writing poems. Um, I'm still writing poems that are informed by the experience that I've written uh, about in this this book. Um, I can't imagine me right now working down, sitting down and trying to write a story or even worse yet, a novel. Poetry right now feels most alive in me and it's how I feel most alive in the world. And for that, I guess I, I can call myself a poet at this point. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Peter Marcus's new collection is called When Our Fathers Return to Us as Birds. It's published on Wayne State University Press. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you, April. Arts and culture coverage on Stateside is supported in part by an award from the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs. Up next, State Representative Joe Tate, who served in Afghanistan, talks to us about why he's compelled to try to help Afghan allies who were left behind after the U.S. withdrawal. You know, obviously there's a difference in culture, but at our core, there are many more similarities. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. The United States may have departed from Afghanistan, but President Biden is promising to continue diplomatic efforts to get more than 100 Americans and thousands of Afghans who were left behind yesterday. In the 17 days that we operated in Kabul after the Taliban seized power, 
We engage in an around-the-clock effort to provide every American the opportunity to leave. Our State Department was working 24-7, contacting and talking, and in some cases, walking Americans into the airport. Again, more than 5,500 Americans were airlifted out. And for those who remain, we will make arrangements to get them out if they so choose. Several groups in Michigan are preparing the way for Afghan people seeking to leave their country and build new homes here. State Representative Joe Tate of Michigan House District 2, located in Wayne County, joins us now. In addition to his state experience, he's also a Marine and Navy veteran who served two tours in Afghanistan. Joe Tate, welcome to Stateside. Thank you, April. Thank you for having me. What do we know about how many Afghans might be on their way to Michigan? I think those numbers are still up in the air. As you know, military operations ended in Afghanistan, and the U.S. military evacuated about 80,000 civilians from Afghanistan with 123,000 with coalition forces and other forms of uh, aircraft. So we're still looking at that situation. From my understanding, I know that it will be a significant amount of Afghans that will be coming to this country, though. Why do you feel like supporting them needs to be a priority? Ultimately, I think it's, it's a part of our American values. When you look at the evacuation that did take place, it was a team effort to get civilians out of Afghanistan, especially those that supported the U.S. and our coalition forces during our 20 years there. And it should be a team effort here. We know that America is a place that is welcoming and that comforts and supports individuals and families who are in need. So we need to be able to step up and do our part. And I think that's important because that is baked in the DNA of our country and who we are. Joe, do you mind talking about your time in service and your tours? Sure. I served as an infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps. I was in Afghanistan twice as an infantry officer between uh, 2010 and 2012. And it was during the time that our operation, our campaign was called Operation During Freedom. So it was during that time that our primary role in my unit was to provide security for the area and also work with Afghan national forces, both in, in training and support of security in the area. And during that time, we saw just a significant amount of commitment from the Afghans that worked with us, and as well from the the U.S. military members who made that commitment to serve on the behalf of of their country. And during that time, I was in um, Helmand Province, which was near the Pakistani border. Mm. Did you have much contact with, with Afghan civilians during that time? Absolutely, quite a bit. We were where our area of operations were, we uh, set really in the middle of kind of a cluster of villages and hamlets during my time in Afghanistan. So every single day we were having interactions with the Afghan locals, whether it was holding uh, different meetings with the local leaders there or going out on 
patrols and meeting with whether it's farmers or people passing through and engaging with them. So it was a quite a bit of interaction uh, with the locals during my time in Afghanistan. Can I ask what this experience has been like for you watching the end of this war, which has occupied so much of a portion of many of our adult lives? And for you, you know, having had first person experience of it, what have your feelings been over the past couple of weeks? The feelings that I've had, you know, still trying to process everything that we have done during our time in Afghanistan. And I think my experience and looking back in during my time is just the commitment that I saw from U.S. service members and people that I served with in Afghanistan and just seeing how we were able to coalesce around a mission and providing security in in the areas that we had as well, too. But also, too, I think coming back and seeing the end of military operations, there have been, I mean, we know this, that there are Americans that are 20 and younger that know nothing else but us being in Afghanistan. And I think the end of military operations does not mean the end of our interaction with Afghanistan or Middle East Asia. We still have a lot more work to do there. This is just a transition of phases. And that's how I look at it. And that America will continue to have engagement in Middle East Asia, just a different form. And we will continue to do that. And I think that as time moves forward, we're going to see that. But it's obviously a watershed moment ending military operations, which I believe needed to happen and moving to other tools in uh, America's toolbox to support the Afghan nation. Are there things that you wish people, more people understood about Afghans? Yes, that, and I think this is intuitive with broadly speaking, the American people is, is that during my time in Afghanistan, I would see families and interact with people there and the commonality, I think that we see we, you know, there's not much in the way of difference in terms of what they wanted in life. And I think what broadly the American people want, I think they want to ensure that they are in a you know a safe environment for them and their family, they want opportunities to to support themselves and their families. I think that's not much different from what we want as a people. So I would say that I know that we do have you know obviously th- there's a difference in culture, but at our core there are many more similarities. You know the families that. I saw in Afghanistan and and the families in terms of of wants and needs that I see here as an American in the United States. Have you had opportunity to talk to other people who you served with or or other folks who have served in these past few days as, as we've been watching some really difficult images coming out of Kabul and other places? Yes, I've had a chance to talk to individuals that were there and serving as 
in Afghanistan during our time there. And, you know, we have quite a few Americans, over 800,000 service members served in Afghanistan for the past 20 years. And everyone obviously has a different experience, a different viewpoint. You probably talk to any service member or veteran that was there. You'll probably get a different response just determined by their experience. But we've had have uh, the opportunity to have conversations uh, with folks that were over there. And it's good to be able to have those conversations because, again, this is not certainly not the end of our engagement. Uh, the U.S.'s engagement in Afghanistan and in Middle East Asia. But certainly in my conversations, there, there's no one, you know, two service members or veterans that have had the same experiences during their time in Afghanistan. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Afghanistan Marine veteran and state representative Joe Tate. He's holding a fundraiser later this month in support of Afghans coming to the Lansing area. You know, despite the fact that the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were part of the same era, you talk to people who served in, and they may have had some very different experiences in both of those theaters. Is there anything that you wish more people understood about the military experience of serving in Afghanistan or about what role U.S. forces were playing there? Things that you wish more Americans understood about that. During my time, I would say one of the, when I served between 2010 and 2012, that I think others, you know, other Americans, I, I would like them to know is just the, the, the engagement that we as, as a military had with the Afghan security forces. So in terms of whether it was, it was training or um, partnership on missions and, and mission accomplishment, obviously it wasn't perfect by any means. It never is in a human endeavor. But that engagement um, certainly meant something in terms of you know, wanting to support um, the country and, and, and the locals there and that investment. So I think that is something that, you know, should be highlighted uh, as we, as we go along is that, is that engagement, not only, and I should say, not only with the security forces, but also uh, with the Afghan locals. Certainly it, 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 as, as we know that uh, during our time and during, we did certainly have conflicts there. We lost almost 2,500 Americans, which we, we really cannot repay them for, for their commitment to this country. And I think that really showcasing the, those engagements and those relationships that, that were built between U.S. service members and Afghans, I think is something that should be highlighted and also continue to be highlighted as Afghans are, are coming and resettling in the U.S., I think it's hard for a lot of Americans to to look at what happened with the Afghan army and and to look at the flow of refugees out of the country 
and to still feel a sense of a sense of mission and accomplishment. And you know, some people are even openly asking right now, what was this for? Is that a question that you're left with? No, it's you know, we we went into Afghanistan at, after what took place during 9-11. Our objective was was to go in and, and root out Al-Qaeda and, and find and hunt down Osama bin Laden. And I think when we look at those objectives, I would say that those were met. Um, I would also say that the kind of second and third order impacts of, of what took place we're not done in vain. I, I think when we were looking at um, some of those other things that we were able to accomplish, whether it was supporting the education of, of young girls and, and, and women, also uh, helping to support the country and being more um, sustainable. Now, I will also say too, as I mentioned before, is that I don't think that this will be the end of it. Uh, we are moving into a different phase. Military operations are over, but there's still going to be certainly engagements, especially on the diplomatic side of, of things. Will we have time? Um, I think we will have time for um, to look back and and learn lessons from this engagement because you know the there is a high probability that we may reach these crossroads again where, where we may have a similar situation i think there's there's no doubt about it and i think one of the biggest priorities for us moving forward uh once we understand what took place obviously with with our um, process for getting evacuees out is is to be able to learn from this and and during future similar future situations is how are we going to be able to learn as a country from the decisions that we have made um, but I think without a doubt for me that we did accomplish our objective. It was far from perfect. War is, is never perfect. Uh, war is unpredictable. But can we learn from those lessons and and be able to make better decisions in the future from what we know and took place in the past? What are your hopes for these Afghan folks who may be coming to Michigan right now and who you've been involved raising money for? What are your hopes for the kind of life they can build for themselves here? My hope is is that they have uh, the same opportunities that have been afforded by American families here for those Afghans that are resettling in the in the United States and the work that myself and and other individuals in terms of fundraising for the Refugee Development Center, which is an organization that that supports. Uh, in the Ingham County in the Lansing area, 
provide supports to refugee families to to build a new life in the area. So at the end of the day, what I would like to see is is those families who who sacrificed um, many of those who sacrificed in Afghanistan that that took risk in supporting American service members while in Afghanistan are afforded the same opportunity that Americans, uh, current Americans, uh, individuals and their families have here now. State Representative Joe Tate of the 2nd District. He's been helping to plan a fundraiser to support Afghan refugees that's happening September 21st in downtown Lansing at the Nelson Gallery. Joe, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks, April. I'm glad to have the opportunity. On tomorrow's show, we'll be talking with the Lansing-based Refugee Development Center about the challenges facing Afghans who will soon be calling Michigan home. We hope you can be with us, too. Can you feel the weather starting to change? We still have a few days left to throw on a suit and go enjoy the lakes as the summer wraps up. Speaking of, have you noticed how oddly warm the Great Lakes feel this year? This is no anecdotal observation. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has been keeping tabs on lake temperatures going back about 25 years. And on the last day of August yesterday, NOAA recorded Lake Erie, Lake Huron, Lakes Michigan and Ontario were as warm as they have ever been during that time. Even icy old Lake Superior red at its third warmest temperature. Now, I don't know if this is going to give you one more thing to freak out about, or if it will make you want to go get in the water like now, but we just thought you'd want to know. And that's Stateside for today. I'm April Bear. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.